Uh, a rather dull passage of scripture compared to the excitement of last week. Don't you think? If you missed last week, you missed it. There's nothing you can do to pull that back except perhaps grab it online or a CD at the back of the church or whatever you, you do. Just while other people are still coming back in and uh, after dropping the children off, uh, let's just build a picture as to where we are in the whole story. We started uh, Genesis 1 verse 1 on the first Sunday in January and we'll end at the end of Revelation somewhere towards the end of uh, this year. And so we're about a third, if not a little bit further, of the way through the story and uh, we're plowing our way through the story of uh, the Old Testament, which is very simple. The beginning, God created heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created mankind, male and female, as the pinnacle of everything that he'd made. We were made, the Bible says, unlike the sheep of the field and the birds of the air, we were made in his image to be like him as relational beings, to know him and to be known by him. And God looked at the world and he stepped back from it and he said, wow, this is... No, that's right. This is very good. Even God was impressed with his own handiwork. And then, profoundly, simple, yet profoundly, we chose to go our own way, to do our own thing. And in Genesis chapter 3, the whole world falls with a mighty crash. Uh, And then there's a very sad moment in the story when God simply reflects on it all and is sad that he's made, he says, my heart is grieved that I made uh, the world. Then there's the flood, because God has to judge sin, but he longs to save people. And so he gathered a family that he was going to save, Noah and his wife and his children and the animals and so on. And then a few chapters later they built a a tower and uh, God came down and confused their languages just to make sure that we as human beings never got the idea in our heads that we could rescue ourselves. That we always would understand we can never build our way back up to God. And so the rest of the story... The whole book of the Bible is about God coming down to rescue us. And he begins with a man called Abraham, and he makes some tremendous promises to Abraham about blessing him, about creating a nation out of him, and out of that nation, blessing people to the ends of the earth. And of course, we know that it's through the seed, the line of Abraham, that Jesus would eventually come. Cut a long story short, the family ends up down in Egypt and indeed God blesses them and they multiply exceedingly and the Egyptian pharaoh pushes them, puts them to harsh labour because he's worried about their power, there are so many of them and uh, they cry out to God and God hears their cries and sends a man named Moses down to Egypt to rescue them. They go out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into the desert where they were only supposed to spend a year being taught about God's provision for sin in the form of sacrifices, where God was teaching them about a new way to live in the land that he was going to give them. But because of their willful disobedience, they spent 40 years wandering around the desert. And eventually, though, made it into the promised land, and they occupied the land, they settled there, 
And then after a while, they rebelled against God. God would raise up a leader. They turned back to God. God would bless them again. They'd rebel against God. God would raise up a leader. They would turn back to God. God would bless them again. They'd rebel against God. And so it went round and round and round the period of the judges. And eventually they said, we want a king. Good idea? God said, don't have a king. But we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. Don't have, oh, but we want to be like, don't. In the end, God says, okay, have a king. But never say, I didn't warn you. First king was Saul. Second king was David. Third king was Solomon. And so at the end of uh, chapter 11 of 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings, uh, sorry, yeah, 1 Kings 11, the end of chapter 11 of 1 Kings, where, uh, we pick up our story. Solomon has come to the end of his life. He started well. Uh, he ended in a pickle. And now we're about to see uh, all the fruit of the seeds that he sowed during his reign. In fact, we're going to see the fruit of seeds that had been sown for many years. Because when they said, we want a king, and God said, I don't think that's a good idea, they should have listened. So what follows then is a story of division and split. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam uh, comes to the throne. And up until this moment, there has been one God, one nation, one king, one church, if you like. But all of that is about to change. One of the mistakes that Solomon made during his reign was that he was a tax and spend king. And so when his son came to the throne, all his advisors told him, his older advisors, I might add, big cheer if you feel like you're older. No? No, 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 not sure? Okay, we're all young in here. The older advisors said to Rehoboam, thank you very much, said to Rehoboam, you need to listen very carefully to what the people are saying. Your father was a tax and spend king, and it's crippling the people. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, verse 4 of chapter 12, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam listened instead to his mates. Verse 8, but Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders gave him and consulted the young men who'd grown up with him and were serving him. So those he went to school with thought they knew best. So Rehoboam's response was, verse 11, my father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Mm, There we go. Now there's a thought. Not surprisingly, it caused a revolt amongst the people. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David's house? So this king had come through David's line. What share do we have in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Let's go home. Leave these guys uh, where they are and look after our own house. So the Israelites went home. And then very shortly after, in verse 20, they appointed their own king. Jeroboam. When all the Israelites heard that Jeroboam had returned, verse 20, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Only the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the house of David. And so the people divide. 
The effects of this division, needless to say, were devastating. The nation was dividing and would never unite again. Something unique that God had formed in time and space would come to an end and would never be repeated this side of eternity. Instead of this nation being a blazing light, they were now two nations who supposedly worshipped the same God who should have been on the same team but would spend the next hundred or more years bickering and quarrelling and fighting amongst themselves. As Jesus would later say, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. In time, the nation of Israel, in the north, so the situation is this, the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the 11 tribes go off with Jeroboam as the king, the, the, the final tribe, the tribe of Judah, that, uh, where Rehoboam was king, stayed in Jerusalem. And it was an unequal divide in so many senses. Unequal because there were 11 tribes and one tribe, but the one tribe almost held all the power. Isn't it like that sometimes? So they had the people and they had the power. They had the power because they had Jerusalem, where the capital was and where the temple was. They controlled the worship. And if you control the worship and the only way to get to God is through the temple, then you can have for yourself a very powerful position. And so this unequal alliance, uh, a division rather, between the, the, the 11 tribes and the single tribe that seemed to wield on one level so much power. And needless to say, it caused huge anxiety. And a kingdom, as Jesus said, divided against itself can't stand. The 11 tribes of the north would eventually be wiped off the face of the map. Judah would too, even later, but that's another story. Although because of God's promise, the very core of that tribe of Judah would remain because there was one coming whose name would be the Lion of Judah and his name is Jesus. Lucky guess, or did you know? (laughs) It's fair bets, isn't it? What's the answer? Probably Jesus. Looks like a grey squirrel, but it's probably Jesus. Absolutely right. But these tribes in the north are never going to be reunited and eventually they're going to fade out of history altogether. It's a massive moment. Division is one of Satan's best ways of destroying what God is doing. Division is one of the best ways of the enemy to destroy what God is doing. He's always been like that, actually. Clever in the way he seeks to divide, often over seemingly incidental things that become far too important. Way back in the garden, for example, when Satan in the form of the serpent sidles up to Eve. Now Eve had known God fully known God and being fully known by him. She stood naked, unashamed before him and yet the serpent comes and seeks to create a division where there was none. The craftiest animal of them all said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat 
from any tree in the garden. He suggests to Eve that there is a division between them when there was none. Because he knows that if he can divide us from each other, and ultimately if he can divide us from God, then everything else will fall like a pack of cards. I don't think God has been honest with you, is essentially what the serpent is saying. And that division leads to another division. The first thing Adam says when confronted with his sin, the woman, uh, the man said, the woman you put here with me. Suddenly, the woman that he'd been united with and one flesh was pushed over there. The woman you gave me, that woman you gave me. And within a few words of the Bible, There is a gulf between man and woman, woman and God, man and God. And Satan smiles. It's always used division, it seems to me, to thwart God's purposes. It can be swift and devastating. Division devastates, does it not? Some of the great moves in history have come to an end incredibly rapidly because of division of one kind or another. But we don't need to look at history to know of examples much closer to home. Think of a marriage. Maybe we find ourselves thinking of our own marriage. Where division has come between us. And one of the greatest forces on the planet of two couples united together and passionate about Jesus become totally unable to focus on his purpose because they're at each other all of the time. And if you say, well, let's pull back a minute. What's this great argument about? We'll struggle to say what it's about because it started with this or with that and then there was this and then there was that and it just got out of hand and bigger and bigger and bigger and it seemingly came from nowhere. And maybe Satan smiles. Think of the church, the division in the church. Over the centuries, we've divided and we've divided and we've divided and we've divided and we've divided. And And it's made us weaker and it's made us weaker and it's made it weaker. And so in the sweep of the Old Testament, the big story, we're looking at it from beginning to end, we're looking at the sweep, there comes this moment of a cataclysmic split that would render God's people almost useless for generations because this division came into the camp, so to speak. And when we allow a foothold of division in human affairs, it creates a division between us and God too. Notice Jeroboam for a moment, the king of the north. You see, when he took part in this division, it affected for him everything. We first meet him in verse 28 of chapter 11, when it says something good about him. He was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. So you get this picture of a godly man of integrity. But this man of standing, when he got caught up in the division of the kingdoms, when he became the rival king, something in his heart changed. And he makes a decision soon after becoming king 
that renders the division irretrievable. He makes a decision that goes right against the purpose of God. Before we look at that, just let's just ask ourselves what might be happening there. His heart has become hard as he's divided, pushed himself away from another part of God's people. And his hard heart has begun to cloud his relationship with God. His eyes have become foggy because of the, the, the falling out here. He can't quite see other relationships straight like he used to. And so he made a terrible decision, verse 26 of chapter 12. He thinks to himself, what am I going to do about this division? I've got all the people, but this tribe has got all the power. I need to claim back some of the power. And so instead of his agenda being about honouring and serving God, suddenly his agenda is all around this division. Have you ever seen that in human relationships? A division takes place over here, but suddenly it affects everything else over here. Nothing's the same. It's all cloudy and murky. And Jeroboam suddenly becomes uh, 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 convicted about his need to strengthen his own position at whatever cost. So he does something quite ridiculous. He says, if these people, verse 27, go up to offer sacrifice at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to the king. I can't have my people going back to Jerusalem to worship because they'll get back there, they'll get sucked into the temple and all of that, and they will alter their allegiance. So what does he do? Verse 28 after seeking advice, lots of people sought the wrong advice, notice, in these verses. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. How blind can you become? Had he not read Deuteronomy about idolatry? Had he not read the story of the Exodus, of how Moses was up the mountain and Aaron uh, creates two golden calves? Has he not read those stories? Did he not understand that it was those golden calves in the main that catapulted Israel into spending 40 years in that barren wilderness? What's this guy thinking of? And to make it worse, he then says, Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. You might say how the mighty have fallen. But out of the division in his heart, his heart has become hard. In dividing himself against another, his heart inevitably becomes harder towards God. And so we, we, we begin to see what, why this division caused such devastation because whenever we begin to divide, we separate ourselves off, we harden our hearts a little bit, we entrench ourselves a little bit more and that not only affects the relationship that we're dividing from, but it affects our relationship with God, it affects our relationship with others, it literally affects everything. Jesus was very clear, wasn't he? About how when you divide against others, It creates a division against God. He says, well, you you rock up at church and you're just about to sing the first song and you go, nah, I don't like that one, I'm going home. No, you're just about to sing the first song and you remember that you've got something against your brother or your sister or it could be your parent or or whatever. Generic term, brother. Leave the worship and go fix that up because you can't expect this to be right if this is wrong. 
And Jesus adds too. He says, uh, just after that verse, whatever you do, settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly. Do it while you're still with him, on the way to court, if that's where you're going. Don't get others involved. Sort it out as fast as you can. And Paul offers this advice, doesn't he? Well, whatever you do, don't sleep on it. Don't go to bed angry. Better to stay up all night than to go to bed angry, maybe. And so we get this picture of this king that's making this absolutely ridiculous decision that began because he chose to divide. And it clouded his heart and it blinded his eyes. And we can see how that happens, can't we? When we divide, we just build a, build a wall around us. And the trouble with a wall is that everybody faces that wall. If I build a wall around my house, then everybody is pushed away because of the wall. And we know that in our relationships. We harden our hearts. Something makes us angry and cross, and that resentment creates a little wall that just, just, just gets in the way, and it gets in the way, and it gets in the way, and so we don't quite know what to do about it, and we put a little bit more on the wall, and, and before we know it, uh, what started off as a, as a little divide over here has, has affected, infected, if you like, like a cancer, many parts of our relationships. And so this king feels obliged to protect the division that he had created. And it spreads like a cancer. So the big question uh, this morning, it's a simple one, really, but it's a big one. Are you causing a division somewhere? I don't know. That's for you to ask yourself. Are you causing a division in your marriage, in your family, in your team at work, in your small group, in your church, in your social club, whatever? In some way. In some way, you're starting to build a wall. Because learn from this story that what started off probably with good intention, well, we'll just separate off and we'll be this northern tribe up here because we don't like the way the king's treating them down there. What started off as a little wall soon becomes something too big for you to climb out of by yourself. And is it worth it? Is the wall worth it? However justified you might feel, so many times the division will hinder the work and purpose of God in you. Is it worth it? Or, or you might not have caused the division, but, but, but maybe you're sustaining it this morning. I'm not sorting it out. I'm not going to say sorry first. It wasn't me that started it. And suddenly we sound like we're in the playground. He started it, miss. Maybe he did. You finish it then. Are we sustaining it simply because there's a wall and we're leaving it there? We feel good that we're not adding to it, but but have we just left the wall there? And maybe it's time to take a brick or two away. The Bible says that these things happened as examples, as warnings to us, so that if we think we're standing firm, we can be careful that we don't fall. If division is left, its effects are devastating. It's one of Satan's most powerful weapons. Notice with me for a moment where the division started. Remember I talked about Solomon being a tax and spend king and it was that uh, way of living that his son Rehoboam so embraced. He said, well, I'm going to tax the people even more because I quite like this lifestyle I've become accustomed to. Turn uh, with me to 1 Kings 10, just a couple of chapters back. 
And uh, it's fascinating because Solomon is taxing the people, he's taxing them heavily, and it tells, uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 10 how much he's getting paid every year from the taxes of the people. What his income is, is 25 tons of gold per year. That's not bad, is it, by anyone's standards? But when the writer includes it, verse 14, the measurement he uses is not of tons, the weight of gold, but of talents. The weight of the gold that Solomon received, verse 14, received yearly was 666 talents. Anyone heard that number before? 666 talents. Now, it could be complete coincidence. There's been lots of those, hasn't there, as we've been traveling along. But the only other time that number is mentioned is in the book of Revelation. It's the mark of the beast. It's the number of Satan himself. Well, what's God's word trying to tell us? Who is Solomon aligning himself with as he sets in motion this behavior that will lead to division, as he fosters a divided heart that would lead to a divided people and ultimately a divided nation. Whose team is Solomon playing for in those verses? This is Solomon who built the temple. This is Solomon who worships at the temple. This is Solomon, the the king who has achieved so much good, and yet in those very few verses, the Bible says, yeah, there's a backstory. Remember Solomon and his backstory? He's aligning himself with the wrong team. Is there an area of your life, yes, you're going to the temple, yes, you're doing an awful lot of good, but is there an area of your life where you're playing for the wrong team or batting on the wrong side? And that's my challenge for you to reflect on in these coming days. Now, of course, there is a godly division. Jesus says that when he comes, people will be divided. Of course, there will always be division as we stand up for truth and righteousness and justice and mercy. We will find ourselves dividing left, right and center against a world that does not honor the God who made us. That's not what we're talking about here. Is there a division? What follows in the story is that both nations have successive kings that are largely useless. Pagan worship flourishes. The nations that were once united are now bickering and waging war. Many of the kings through the chapters end with a violent death. Division leads to destruction. But over these next few chapters, the focus moves away from the division of the people to God's declaration. God makes judgments about each of the kings as they reign. And as I said a few moments ago, most of the judgments are not very favorable at all. But the one that caused me to think the most was in chapter 16, the king Omri. What God's word said about Omri. And the reason that it struck me this particular set of verses, is that many of the kings were pretty useless and they did some violent and terrible things. But Omri didn't. 
Omri, on the face of it, by the world standards, was a pretty decent fellow. By the world standards, he was a pretty good king. Politically and internationally, he was probably the strongest political leader the North would ever have. He established Israel as an international kingdom, so much so that even 150 years later, they would look back and they would, even the the foreign nations, the Assyrians, would refer to Israel as the house of Omri. He strengthened the nation internally. He established the capital city of Samaria. So in many ways, humanly, he did a very good job. And then you read what the Bible says about him. But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a sobering reminder that in the end, it doesn't matter how good you are, how great your achievements have been, if you've not helped people to follow God and walk in His ways, God's declaration is that you've wasted your time. You've squandered the opportunity He's given you and He calls it here, evil. Omri was evil because he had failed in his responsibility to call the people back to God. He had failed in his responsibility to call people back to worship and to service of him. And it worried me a little about the standards I set for myself. It worried me a little. Is it so easy to become so focused on on doing something that's good, of achieving something that in worldly standards seems to be okay, and yet there's a God in heaven who says, that's way off the mark. Do we settle for something less than God's best? Am I settling for a comfortable life when God calls me to sacrifice? Am I raising my children to be well-educated and self-satisfied when God wants them to be radical followers of him? Am I pursuing happiness and contentment and, and being good and pleasant to those around when God calls me to holiness and Christ-like discipleship that we see so rarely? And if God said to Omri, you did evil when he did so much good, what might God say to me as I try and look at the things I think might be okay and say, is that all right? And God judges by a very different standard. I guess in the end, the most sobering issue about these chapters is to read the crippling legacy that Solomon and David left. Neither of these men finished well. And what followed was the succession of kings that failed and failed again and failed again. It wasn't enough in God's eyes for them to be politically astute or to even lead the nation well. It was about their relationship with the God of heaven. And for all the greatness of Solomon, he left a terrible legacy of anger and resentment that got played out through subsequent generations. So what legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to be remembered for? Or to ask the question a little differently, are we like Solomon, so fixed on the moment 
so assured of our own permanence, so unwilling to think about our own mortality, so we live as if we are always here and pay little attention to what we might leave. We make a will, of course, to be certain that our friends maybe or our families are provided for, but what kind of provision is that? And in the end, is that enough? And as I fold over these pages of kings that that, that make one mess after another, and as I reflect on the greatness of David and Solomon and, and then this, these guys that seem to live for the moment, and they left very little, and in the end, they sowed the seeds of their own undoing. So what do you want to be remembered for? And how is your answer to that question shaping the way that you live this week and next month and next year? How is the answer to that question shaping the way you spend your time now, today? Because we're uncertain of how many tomorrows. Sweeping tragedy of this whole period of history is that God said it would happen. And so, in a sense, the final challenge in these verses is the challenge to listen. Remember way back when they said to Samuel, let's have a king. And God said to Samuel, "Uh, they're keeping on about this. I'll give them a king, but warn them. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take. And then there's about ten verses that describe all the different things the king will take from you. He'll take this from you, and he'll take that from you. He'll take the other from you. But if they still want a king... Give them a king. We just want to be like everybody else. And so God gave them a king. And they didn't listen. In verse 18 of 1 Samuel 8, When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. These verses in 1 Kings are an exact fulfillment of that prophecy some hundreds of years previous. Because God is always right, isn't he? It's just a question of time before we'll see it. How tempted it would have been for them in the days of David and Solomon to say, well, God didn't know what he was talking about. This king thing is a fantastic idea. But God is always right. And in the end, if it wasn't for God's words and God's promises, the kings of Israel and Judah, if left to themselves, would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Because he's always right. Are you insisting on something today that you know God is not too keen on? There are two things that will happen. God will keep saying no. The second thing that will happen is one day God might say, oh, go on then. Which is worse? Which is worse? Please, God, save me from jumping up and down about something I want so much that you say, go on and have it. Because God is always right. It's just a question of time.